uh, Luke 13, verses 1 through 9. So please stand and listen as we read God's word. There were some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for three, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is God's word for us this morning. Pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word informs us it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And this passage has a message for all of us in here this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit will work in all of our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. The one tough thing about teaching after you sing some of your favorite songs is you lose your voice, so pray for my voice right now. In Life Group this past week, I typically start out with a, a, a TPQ, a thought-provoking question. Sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's funny. This one was kind of funny. We want to get some the people eat. Uh, ready to go and talking. And so the question was, if you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? If you could only eat one thing for the rest of your life, what would it be? And we had everything from like, you know, avocado toast. They're like, okay, that's what's weird. Um, <laughs> but I love the guy who said it because he said he thought about this question a lot. So we're like, all right, we'll go with that. Pizza, who did pizza? I was like, yes and amen. Shepherd's pie. And then we talked about a sandwich. Someone brought up a sandwich. And we're like, for, for, I don't know how this happened, but all of a sudden, we almost came in this intense theological discussion about this one particular sandwich. Is a hot dog a sandwich? <laughs> oh, okay. See? I, 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 all right. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Raise your hand. Yes? All right. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Raise your hand. No. <laughs> the nose have it. All right. Settled. I love it, man. I love it. I mean, it's just so good. But it got me thinking because this week we just read about a fig tree. And initially, in my mind, because of this question we just answered in life group, was Is a fig Newton a cookie? <laughs> now, I could care less about fig Newtons. I hate fig Newtons. They're right up there with like cottage cheese and Brussels sprouts. Anyone else with me? <laughs> like, I'm not eating a fig Newton. But. To make a fig Newton, you got to have a fig tree that produces fruit, right? And Jesus, in this passage, uses an illustration of a fig tree that isn't producing fruit. And he uses it as a sober reminder of a spiritual reality. And this spiritual reality is this. If you're a Christian, 
You should be bearing spiritual, Holy Spirit, kingdom-informed fruit. People should look at you and be like, something different about you. You're, you're a Christian. You are a follower of Jesus. But if you say you're a Christian and you're not producing any spiritual fruit, then you need to do an inventory check on your heart to see if you're truly connected to the vine, the true vine, Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is sharing with us this morning. Now these words in 13, 1-9, they may seem kind of harsh, they may seem kind of direct. It's very, very clear what Jesus is saying. But these words are filled with love. These words are filled with compassion. Directed to the audience back then He was talking to and to you and me this morning. Everyone in here needs to hear Jesus teaching us this morning with these words. And whoever acts on them, whoever does repent of their sin, you're not going to perish. But you're going to be raised up to joyful, eternal life. And so my prayer this week, as I've been praying and going through this for this moment and thinking about everyone in this room, my prayer this week is that every single one of us walks out of there knowing that we are connected to Jesus and we are Holy Spirit-filled, kingdom-producing, fruit-bearing trees. Amen? Jesus lays out this section of Scripture with really one point. And He gets right to that point. It's straight. It's, it's repent. If you wanted to break, break it up into two, you could. Verses 1-5, through five, repent. Verses 6-9, through nine, repent now. So it's all about repentance. So let's dive in. Repent. Look at verse... 1 of chapter 13. There were some present at this very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And He, Jesus, answered them, Do you think these Galileans were any worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Verse 3, No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. For the eighteen whom on the Tower of Shalom fell and killed Do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Everyone hearing Jesus talk, the question of what Pilate did, or not the question, the statement of what Pilate did, the statement of what Jesus gave, everyone in there would not have been informed on these two events, these two tragic events, it would have been all over the Jerusalem news feeds over there. It would have been all over YouTube back then. Everyone in the crowd would have been very familiar with these two events. Now, we don't have much to go on these events in description, not in antiquity or in the rest of the Scripture, so we can only go on what is said here. And the first event, the first tragedy we see comes at the hands of a human dictator, a human leader. This is a human atrocity by a cruel leader, Pontius Pilate. It seems that that Galilee, kind of north of Jerusalem, these Galileans, people like Peter, James, and John, came down to worship the Lord during the Passover. And they brought their, their lambs, they brought their sacrifices to the Passover. And they were in the midst of worshiping, they were in the midst of offering up their sacrifices when all of a sudden they were sabotaged by Pilate's soldiers and brutally slaughtered. To the point where their blood started to mingle with the blood of the sacrifice. This, in Jewish culture, would have been the ultimate disrespect, the ultimate sacrilege, but in a brutal, brutal, brutal scene. So that's the first thing, this tragedy of human atrocity. The second 
is what Jesus brings up. It's a construction accident. It's a construction accident. Seeing like the men working on this tower, something, the scaffolding must have fell or broken. This tower fell and killed 18 individuals. And so we have these two tragic events. One caused by humanity. The other just an accident. But in both cases, Jesus is focusing on something very specific. He's focusing on the unbiblical thought process of when you see a tragedy happen, what do they attribute it to that was circulating in this culture? They believed if you look at Jesus' answers, the, the people of this day, the Jews of this day, believed that the Galileans and the other Jews that were killed must have been wicked. And must have had some kind of secret sin in their life. And they deserve to die in this manner. That God was so displeased with them and their hypocrisy. That this is the judgment that they were going to get a brutal death. And we see this is not only the thought process of that culture, but it also is the very the beginning to even to our day now. We can think about immediately our minds should go to the story of Job. Right here's Job who's doing all great, he's wealthy, he's rich, he's leading, then all of a sudden what happens? He gets everything taken away from him. He loses his friend, he loses his, his wealth, his business. He's covered up in sickness and disease, and he has friends come like, Job, dude, you must have some secret sin. You need to confess right now, because God is judging you. But even Jesus' own disciples, the one he called in John chapter 9, it says this, as he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man... Blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that caused his blindness? So we see in the culture back then, there was an equation. Wickedness, your personal sin, led to personal tragedy. They believed that personal disasters, physical disabled, or if you died a brutal death, the result direct result was you deserved it. There's something in your life that caused God to judge you in this manner. Now, we already know this is faulty thinking and doesn't come from Scripture. In Job, we know Job didn't have any secret sin. Satan asked God if he could test him. So it was a test. And God said, yes, go ahead, test my servant. Here in John, Jesus said, hey, this wasn't man's sin. This wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin. But I allowed blindness to come upon him so the glory of God might be made known. So in both those cases, sin wasn't the issue. And not much has changed. As I said, it happened not only back then, but it happens in our day. What's the label we give it today in our culture? Karma. Who said that? That was pretty good. Atta boy. All right, Dan. My dad. I love it. Karma. Karma. And this, this idea of karma is not just outside the church in a cult like Hinduism, but it's also permeated into our church. There's some churches out there, and I put them in quotes because I don't believe they're Christian church, but the prosperity gospel churches, the name it and claim it churches, have this in their theology. But we can also think through this grid, can't we? How many of you in here have ever had the thought that God is still punishing you for something that you have done 10 years ago, 
five years ago? I bet you if we were honest, every single one of us would be like, yeah, God's disappointed with me. He's angry with me. He still punished me for that thing that I did years ago. And let me just stop and say right now, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And that is not how the gospel and God's love operates. Karma says that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Let me again just put this to bed so it never raises its wicked head in your heart and mind and paralyzes your walk with Jesus. Who was the most perfect person to ever live on the face of this planet? Who never sinned in his life? Who lived out and followed God to the T perfectly? Jesus. Who died a death that was gruesome? Who died a death that was humiliating? Who died a death to a person who didn't deserve to die? Jesus. If karma was true, if karma was biblical, Jesus would have never have died. But he did. Therefore, we are no longer, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are no longer under God's wrath or judgment. Hear me clearly this morning. If you battle with this, God doesn't deal with you. He doesn't deal with me according to our sin, but according to Christ's righteousness. That's where we need to live. If you are in Christ, God does not dish out punitive justice on us because Christ took it all on the cross. That's what the atonement is all about. Christ taking the payment of your sin and my sin, nailing it to the cross so that we might be forgiven. So He never deals with us in punitive ways. Now He does, as a good father, discipline us. As any good father does. But again, not to punish us, but to transform us. So Romans 8.1 says, there's, no now come, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, He does not deal with you as a criminal. He deals with you as a son and a daughter, as a, as a loving father. Hebrews 12.6 says this, For the Lord disciplines those He loves. For, the one, for this is good, because it shows and helps us walk in His holiness. So do not do what these individuals assumed what happened to these people was right because they asked the wrong question. The question they were asking is, I wonder what they did to deserve this. That's the wrong question. And just real quick, parentheses, if you're walking through a situation, a brother and sister in the faith is hurting, is going through a, a tragic situation, don't sit them down and be like one of Job's friends. And ask them, hey, why do you think God is judging you or punishing you right now? You see, you and I are not God, and we don't know about the 10 million things that God could be doing or allowing those things to happen at that moment. Amen? Let's enter in and be compassionate and, and walk through them the way that Christ walks through with us, through the lens of the gospel of grace and truth. So they asked the wrong question. What did these people do to deserve this? And Jesus the master teacher he is, focuses them on right, asking the right question. The right question. Look at verse 2 and 5. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners? An implication, than you? Verse 5. Those who were killed by this tower, were they worse offenders? 
than you? Jesus emphatically says, no, no, no. And then he says something sobering to him. Look whose sin he wants them to focus on. Is it Pilate's? Is it the other Jews? No, verse 3 and 5 says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent. Circle that word you in your Bibles. Because Jesus is speaking to you this morning and me this morning. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus says, when you see a tragic accident happen, the first question in your mind shouldn't be, I wonder what they did. The first question in your mind should be, am I ready to die? Because we know that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And that's what tragic events should immediately point us to. Sin does equal and will lead to death. We are all going to make it. The death ratio is one to one. We're all going to make death. There's other questions we should ask about compassion and stuff. But one of the first questions when we see these tragic accidents is we should say, man, am I ready to die? That's what Jesus is getting at. Because again, he's, he's, he's getting their focus not on out there, but he's coming right directly into our living room, right directly into our hearts and saying, are you right with God? Speaking of the universality of sin that we all deal with. And if we don't repent, Jesus says you're going to perish. Listen, Jesus in the Bible says we live in a binary world. We live in a binary world. Now there's night, there's day, there's men, there's women, there's single, there's married. And Jesus says here, He says you got two options. You repent or you perish. I mean, it's it's real clear. I mean, this is sobering words to the audience that he's talking to. Sobering words to you and me this morning. You have two options. Jesus says, repent or perish. So immediately he puts us all in the same boat. We will all in here perish of our sin unless we repent of our sin. Now, repentance is a major pillar of the gospel. Jesus and the apostles, when they started preaching, they started preaching first and foremost about repentance and faith. They, they're two side, they're two, kind of two wings of the same plane. When Jesus came in Mark 1.15, the first message He proclaimed was the message of repentance. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Matthew's account, Matthew kind of uh, uh, recorded Jesus' first sermon for us. That He began to preach His first message was this, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, he preached that massive sermon on the gospel to the the people of Israel. And they said, what must we do to be saved? And he said, what? Repent and believe in Jesus. Repentance is the heartbeat of the gospel. Martin Luther, 95 theses that he nailed on the the door of Wittenberg. 95 kind of... Uh, accounts and accusations against the church. You know what number one was? Number one was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent in Matthew chapter 4, this is Martin Luther, He willed the entire life of the believer is a life of repentance. Repentance is a pillar of the Christian faith. Confession and repentance. So what does it mean for us to repent? What is repentance? Now I know this is like a 
This is Christianity 101 for all of us, but it's always good to remind ourselves because we're called to live a life of repentance. Repentance is to change one's mind and feel remorse. There's a conviction of our sin, which involves a turning with contrition from sin to God, which leads to change in our life and passions. In other words, repentance has three aspects to it. There's a conviction of sin. There's a contrition of our sin. And then there's a change in our lifestyle. Before Christ, we're, we're running after, we're serving, we're embracing sin. We're living a life of fulfilling and gratifying the flesh. And we see ourselves as our own God. Once we hear the gospel and the good news, and if we don't repent, we're going to perish. Once that convicts our heart, we turn from embracing that we turn away and we embrace Jesus and the gospel. So it's a turning from something and embracing something so much better in Jesus. There's a conviction, there's a contrition, and there's a change. It's really a beautiful picture, repentance. I love what my favorite Puritan Thomas Watson, how he describes it. He says this, Repentance is a grace of God's Spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled Invisibly reformed. Conviction, contrition, and change. Again, before a life of sin, we embraced, we repented, we trust in God, we are justified at that moment, forgiven, but then we start this sanctification process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And, and this is where all of life is confession and repentance, because now we become like. John the Baptist said in Luke 3.8 that we are to continue to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Again, this is the fruit. The fruit of repentance is you're going to show and live and embrace spiritual fruit. You and I both used to embrace foolishness and now we want to embrace wisdom. You and I embrace a life of selfishness and now we want to embrace a life of servanthood. You and I embrace a life of greed, and now we want to embrace a life of gratitude. You and I embrace the life that leads to death, and now we live and embrace a life that leads to Jesus in life. Again, we're not perfect. It's a, it's a lifelong of repentance. But that's the trajectory of our lives. We, we see our sin. We run from our sin. We embrace Christ, and we want to walk and live and follow the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our good shepherd. Now, do we do that perfectly? No. But that's why we have and still can repent. There are some in this room, and this is be all of us, where do you need to repent right now? Some we have some relational strife and some friendships. We have some marital strife between spouses. And Jesus is calling you in the progressive sanctification of keep bearing fruit and keeping of repentance is to repent, is to humble yourselves and repent of your sin in these relationships so that your relationships don't perish and cause carnage to all around you. So repent, Jesus says. Now notice there's another important detail about these two tragic situations. Um, both came suddenly, right? Uh, death came without a warning, to these individuals. And, and we can't plan our own death. Does anyone have their death in their calendar? Go ahead and raise your hand. No, if you did, you'd probably be in prison right now on death row, right? Those are the only ones that have death on their calendar. 
But all, everyone else in here, we don't have it on our calendar. We are all invincible until God decides to call us home. And that brings us to the next situation, or, the, or brings us to our parable, is repent now. Look at verse 6. And he told this parable, Jesus, a man, God, had a fig tree, Israel, planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said, the vine dresser, and he said to the vine dresser, so God speaking to the vine dresser, Jesus, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Verse 8, and Jesus answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should not bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Now, this, in its cultural context, Jesus is, is speaking to the Jews in the nation of, of Israel right there. This, there's an interesting look for three years. It's like God the Father sent Jesus. Somebody like God the Father sent Jesus for three years to be the, the physical manifestation of God and love and grace and truth, and they've rejected that. So it's like God is done with His people, but we see the graciousness of the heart of Jesus. God is entirely just to be He's like, yeah, it's cutting down. It's not producing any fruit. But Jesus says, wait, Lord, one more. Let's give him another chance. And so this is going to the nation of Israel. It's, it's, it's Jesus saying, let's give Israel a more opportunity to repent before they experience God's judgment. Let me just continue to love and serve and speak truth to these people. And we know that this some point to 70 A.D. as Jewish people didn't heed Jesus. Some did, but not the majority of them. And so therefore, there was judgment come down. But what does it have to say to us this morning? I think the same principle is true. Especially if you have not bowed your knee to King Jesus right now. If you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian right now, Jesus is imploring you with these words. Repent now. And we see that this is Jesus' grace and love and patience with you because He hasn't cut you down yet. You haven't died. He's still giving you that opportunity. In fact, He's brought you here this morning for this specific reason so that you could hear His words. You could see your sin. You could see your rebellion, your rejection of Him, that you would repent and trust in Him. So Jesus is being very gracious to you this morning, just like He's been very gracious to all of us this morning. Okay? You haven't been cut down yet. You haven't tasted death. And as you haven't, today is the day of salvation. He's given you more time to repent. And He's saying, come to Me this morning. Come to Me this morning. I love you. I've given My Son for you. Jesus has willingly come to live the perfect life in your place and my place. To take on the payment that we should have paid. And He died on the cross for your sin and my sin to raise again. Repent and believe in Jesus. And you will not perish. You'll have eternal life. Something to look forward with hope. So we do that now. I was reminded this week in my studies that every single one of us have three seasons of life that we go through. 
The first season is that we're conceived, that we're in the, our mother's womb for nine months, right? And um, then we're born. And do you ever wonder why the baby's crying when they're born? I mean, we know moms have it tough during birth. We know, we know that, right? But man, so do the babies, you know? I mean, just think about it. They were in their mom's tummy, you know, in this nice warm sauna, you know, wasn't too bright. Then all of a sudden they're born. <laughs> all of a sudden they got these bright lights and they're freezing and they got some stranger like moving them all around. You know, it's like, man, that's why they're crying. Those poor little guys. Right. But we've all gone through that. We've all been traumatized through that. So that's us. So that's the first season. Nine months. Then the second season is where most of us live and think and and we, as one said, we put all of our eggs in this basket. Basket. The second season is is life on Earth, and typically the average lifespan of everyone is in their their low seventies. And so we go throughout life and we live life. And this is where we give our time, our attention, our focus, and our effort in this second season. But rarely do we think about the third season and the longest season, and that's eternal life. We don't give much thought to that. Today, again, if you're not a Christian, we're asking you to think on the sobering reality of perishing, of eternal judgment in hell and not in heaven. The majority of us in here, by God's grace, have seen our sin, have repented of our sin, and the closest the hell will ever get is here on earth. And we are looking forward to heaven. And we would love for you to join us. So hear Jesus' kind words to you this morning. Repent. And for us that have done that, let me just give you three real practical, real easy and real practical applications of this passage. Because really this passage is focused on those that haven't repented yet. But let me give you some practical applications for us that have repented. Again, we talked about what is a good question and what is a bad question. Let me give you another good question to ask yourself, to meditate on regarding Jesus and the gospel in his grace and mercy in your life. Here's the question. Why did God save you? Why did God save me? I've asked myself that question many a times because apart from Christ, I was not lovable. I was not savable. God wouldn't want Aaron Santini on his team because I wanted nothing to do with him. So why did God save me? And you know what my answer is? I don't know. At first, it's like, I don't know. I don't have an answer. But then as I read the Scriptures, as I read the Gospel, the answer has changed. Why has God saved me? For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. That's why He saved me. That's why He saved you. Because He loves you. He loves you. God demonstrated His love towards us. That while we were sinners, while we were rebels, rebels while we were running from Him, He saved us. Because He loves us. So meditate on that question whenever you feel you're in the tank. 
And whenever you feel like you do sin, you're like, oh gosh, I sinned again. And again, I've used this illustration where we play the he loves me, he loves me not game, right? Oh, I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to a life group. I'm, I'm in Christian fellowship. Oh, God loves me. Oh, I slept in, didn't go to church. Ah, I rather went to the, the pub to watch the game instead of go to life. Oh, he loves me not. It's not the gospel. It's not about your performance. It's not about our performance. It's about his performance. So when you go into the tank, remember, the reason why God saved you is because he loves you. Number two, as we keep, as we understand that, we want to we thank the Lord. We, it leads us to worship. It leads us to singing and song. And it leads us to, now I get to come to church and be around his people. I get to, to study his Bible. I get to sing worship songs in the car. I, I get to live a life as a living sacrifice. And that leads to the second one is, is keep bearing fruit. Keep bearing spiritual fruit. Holy Spirit, kingdom filled fruit. And keeping with your testimony of repentance. I love how one said it. I don't think we do this too often, but he says we should count the fruit in our lives. We, 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 we should sometimes take a step back and, 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 and look at the big picture and, and see where we were before Christ and how Christ saved us and now where, where we've been and see like, wow, the Lord is changing me. He is doing something in me. Count the spiritual fruit in your lives. Again, not for pride, but to show that the Lord is working in your heart and in your life. He is accomplishing all he said in his promises to you and to me. I think I mean, I just step back and I look at, at 2023 and we talked about this at the state of the crossing and all the good things that the Lord is doing through this church, through you. You guys are proving to northern Colorado and this world that your repentance and your faith in Jesus is real and it's flourishing and it's impacting northern Colorado. It's impacting your, your classmates, your friends, your families, your co-workers. The growth of this church, not only physical growth, but also spiritual growth. The baptisms that we've had, the marriages that have been saved, the financial blessings in this place to make this facility even a better place to use for outreach and other things. The ministry in the, that you guys are giving your time, talent, and treasure for, for the kingdom of God to move forward. It's awesome. So count the fruit in your life. And third and finally, Easter's coming. It's coming in hot. I don't know if you know this. It's coming in hot, right? I mean, it's going to be here in five weeks. It's the last Sunday in March. I think it's March 31st. It's coming early. It's coming in hot. So who are you? Who's, who's your one more you're praying for? And we implemented that phrase at the state of the cross. And who is that one more, that one more person that doesn't know Jesus in your life that you're around, that you get? The Lord has strategically put you in there Right in front of you. In, you're in their relationship. You're in their sphere. Sphere where you're, you get to influence them. Who's your one more that you're praying for to come to know Jesus? You see, in this text, there's an urgency for those that don't know Jesus to repent and to believe in the gospel. But we know faith only comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we know Romans also says that 
there's an urgency then for us to bring the gospel to those that do not know the gospel. There's not only an urgency for those to hear the gospel and repent, but there's also an urgency for you and for me to take the gospel and the good news of Jesus to those who don't know him in our circles of influence where we live, work, and play. So that's our call that Jesus is saying. Let's be the ambassadors that I have called you to be. Who's that one more you're praying for? Start praying for him. To come to know Jesus. For that opportunity to invite them to the Easter gathering. And then watch the Lord work a miracle in their heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, this word is short. This word is sweet. This word is sobering. And this word is for every single one of us in here this morning. And it's my prayer that again, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that they would, they would hear your words to them this morning. For God so loved them, they sent His Son to die on the cross, that whoever believes should not perish, but gain eternal life. Those of us that have done that, Lord, I pray that we, man, we worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we do take an inventory check of the fruit that you are producing in us, but don't stay there. But then we turn our eyes outward to be used as your ambassadors for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.